Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So today we have a really amazing founder that, uh, you know, we're going to be definitely talking about the rocket ship that he's building. But there's a lot, you know, to really unpack on our on our episode today, you know, from being a lawyer to all of a sudden becoming a software engineer and now running his own startup, being part of an acquisition. You know, he was part of the team of this company that sold to sell to Salesforce and then also figuring out monetization as well as the emotional roller coasters that you deal with as a founder. So without further ado, let's welcome our guest today, Matt Martin. Welcome to the show. Thanks for having me, Alejandro. I'm happy to be here. So originally born in Minnesota, give us a walk through memory lane. How was life growing up? You know, Minnesota is one of those places where it is a fantastic place to live, despite the weather. Um, great upbringing, great place to grow up, uh, you know, great friends. But also, you know, there's not there's not a lot that I can tell you, like, you got to come here for this. You got to come here for that. The lakes are great. Um but it's mostly just a, you know, it's a wonderful place to, to grow up. Um, uh, cold winters, a lot of sledding, uh, nice summers, and that's about it. That's amazing. Now, in your case, you know, eventually, you know, you went to Dartmouth for the undergrad. But one thing that is very interesting is that you got into the whole politics. How did you get into politics? How, uh, how did that happen? Yeah. So, you know, look, uh, I think that one of the things that actually came with me from Minnesota is that we have uh, a tradition of kind of pragmatic progressive politics um it's kind of all the scandinavian blood that's out here and i just saw the value of when people come together uh you can actually do big things um i think in a weird way it's actually what inspires me to be in software as well as having an impact on a large scale you know you can push a piece of software to the web anybody can access it and in politics it works the scale of change is i think even larger even though the time to change is much longer and slower um, and so I, I just got really fired up in high school and then in uh, college, I ended up interning with my then senator and just kind of got the political bug, couldn't help myself um, and ended up uh, working on a few Senate campaigns uh, with uh, now Senator Amy Klobuchar, worked on her first Senate campaign, worked on Health Breakfast campaign. Um, but also, you know, when you're a young, when you're a young person, uh, it's just a, you know, you're surrounded by really sharp, really motivated uh, really high energy young people that are getting paid nothing, um, that are working hard uh, to kind of pursue a vision. So it's it's just a fun environment. So then, in your case, you know, eventually you um, you went from that to law school. You know, like what 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 puts you what puts you into into law school? Oh man, that's a good question. Uh, if I could tell myself now, uh, if I if I could tell myself then what I know now, I'd say you know save the money. Uh, <laughs> Uh, but I think it was the political bug. I mean, you know, look, like I was I was working on these campaigns. I was in these circles where you, know, you look at kind of the career path and either you flame out or you end up, uh, you know, kind of going down a policy route. And I, I was motivated by having that level of change, by being involved in those circles, by being involved in those big decisions. And so law school just looked like a natural next step that, you know, you, you pull your head up, you look around, you're surrounded by lawyers and you think, well, maybe I'll be one of those. Um, and my intent going to law school was to come out the other side and do something in government or in uh, public policy or in politics 
Uh, but I was uh, graduating from law school kind of during the height of the legal recession, which kind of trailed the, you know, the 08, 09, 10 recession a little bit. Um, and just, you know, it, not many places were hiring, but places that didn't make money certainly weren't hiring. So governments were kind of on a hiring freeze, public policy shops were on a hiring freeze. But that is what got me in. Um, but I ended up being a litigator in a large law firm, which really wasn't my intent. I mean, that's a, quite the transition there. Uh, now, being a litigator, obviously, you were able to, you know, at least see the bad and the ugly when it comes to the corporate side. No, so, yeah. so what were some of the things that they, perhaps you you learned there, you know, about things going south when it comes to business? Yeah, you know, it's interesting. I mean, one of the things about being a litigator that you have to wrap your head around is you are always trying to give your client the absolute best argument. You know, you're trying to you're trying to position their facts and their circumstances in a way to provide the best advocacy. And so I think, you know, you can either kind of uh, go off the deep end and convince yourself that you're always right, um, which is which is a strategy that some attorneys take. Um, but I think what for most uh, attorneys or litigators realize is that uh, every situation is nuanced. Every situation has sides to it. Every situation has you know, sides where um, you probably are in the right, where you're probably in the wrong. Um, and uh, realizing that, you know, this is all business, um, at least in the context that I was working in. I was a litigator, not in a criminal sense, but in a civil sense. And so we're doing civil litigation for large companies. You realize, you know, look, it's business. There's nuance here. Some people got it right. Some people got it wrong. It's rarely black and white, but you try to give, you try to dig in, find the best facts and figure out how to provide the best uh, advocacy for a client. I think that was a interesting uh, education for me as somebody operating in the commercial sphere is, you know, look like you can look from the outside and you can handicap these things, but people are making the best decision they can at the time. And every once in a while, you encounter a truly bad actor. But most of the time, it's just things going off the rails or not going the right direction or people not seeing eye to eye. Now, in your case, at what point, you know, now that you are a corporate uh, attorney and and obviously you know as an attorney you make good money but at what point does the life crisis hit you to start thinking what the hell am i doing you know i may i may have to maybe explore a different path yeah well fortunately it hit me at relatively young it was in midlife you know look uh, so being an attorney you're right it is it is uh especially in a large law firm it is stable it is a pretty good salary it is a pretty good lifestyle you work your ass off especially as a young attorney um, but I think if you get into it and you're on this path, that's kind of something you enjoy. You might have a screw loose in that regard. What drove me nuts more than anything else, actually, I did not hate the work. There are some attorneys who just like find it a bore. I found some of this stuff pretty interesting and pretty engaging. But what drove me nuts is that stability. You know, I could look down the hallway of this law firm and I could see partners who had been there their whole life. And I could kind of see where I might be when I'm 40, 50, 60 years old. And that just, uh, frankly, scared me. Um, I like uh, challenge. I like volatility. I like change. I like grappling with new circumstances. Um, that's that sort of kind of stable, tried and true path just was no interest to me. It didn't seem like a good way to spend my uh, few years on this earth. And then in combination with that, you know, one side that... Um, my life that uh, doesn't come up in my bio is I love making. Um, I was always kind of a you know drawer painter, 
Uh, and as much as somebody might try to convince you that writing a legal brief is a creative process, it is not. <laughs> it is, I mean, at the margin, sure, but you are not putting something new into the world, something that you created. And so just that, like, I don't know, that creative zeal, I just, that combined with kind of the, I don't know, the, the stale security of it, I just, it was driving me bonkers. And so I was like, I got to get out of here. So then tell us about that moment where you make the decision. I got to get out of here. What happens yeah. after? Yeah. So, so this is embarrassingly cliched for a Silicon Valley founder, but I, I will cop to it. I was uh, in my office and Steve Jobs died. Uh, and I had always been an Apple guy and like, look, like um, I revere Steve Jobs, but I also know he's a human. He had a lot of downsides and a lot of bad behavior, but look, that guy changed the world and he was always an icon for me. And he, he died and I was in my office watching his Stanford commencement address. Um, and in that address, uh, you know, he has a line essentially to the extent of like, you know, the only way you can do great work is if you're doing something you really love. And uh, deep down, I think we all know what that is. It's just we find reasons why we can't do it. And for me, it was just, I had been building a, a software company on the side. Yeah, it wasn't going anywhere. I mean, I, I was a full-time attorney. I was trying to do this in law school. It was kind of a hobby, but I loved it. You know, I always loved putting stuff on the web. I'd always loved creating software. I'd always loved actually uh, engineering, software engineering, be able to put, you know, fingers to a keyboard and create something new. It's just remarkable. And I was just sitting there and going, you know, he's right. I got to, I, I, I'm making excuses. I got to go. So I left and came to the Bay Area and um, took a job. I don't have a CS degree. Uh no, I don't have an MBA. Um, I don't classically look like anything that a startup needs. <laughs> um, and so I just hit uh, everyone that I could to try to find a job at anything I could. You know, I took a huge, huge, huge pay cut initially to zero because I was just trying to find something. Um, but, you know, kind of weaseled my way in a few startups and then proved myself and proved that I could actually, you know, do a little bit of coding and uh, wean that in the next thing. And I was, you know, off to the races. So obviously one thing led to the next and then you ended up in Relate IQ, which um, really gave you access to seeing also the full life cycle of a company you know, and really experiencing yep. that because yep. the company ended up getting acquired by Salesforce. But what, what was that journey like of, of really being able to experience that and, and having that type of visibility to, to what the full cycle looks like? Yeah. Um, so... I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to get to Relate IQ in a second, but Alejandro, when I, whenever I'm on these podcasts, I, I always like to pay it forward a little bit um, in not papering over that transition because uh, I, I, I have been on the other side of that coin where you know I was trying to break through into software and it looks like it should be easier. I hear these stories. It just happens for people. It was really hard. And so if anybody's out there uh, who's trying to make that transition themselves, who's trying to break in. Um, especially if you don't have a CS degree or if you don't have a CS degree from, a, you know, one of the top 10 CS schools, you know, it's, it's hard. It is really hard to break through. Um, and I would just advise people that if this is your passion, if this is really what you want to do, you got to dig in and prove out how you can add value, you know, push that um, side project, you know, really push yourself to the limit in terms of domain expertise in an area that you're really excited about. Prove yourself, take that, take that job that, you know, maybe you um, don't quite have the financial wherewithal to take, but take it for a couple of months to try to prove yourself, um, break it any way you can and stay persistent with it. And if you ever want to chat about it, you know, hit me up. Um, but uh, let's move on to Relate IQ. 
So, so, so walk through us, you know, walk, walk us through how, you know, was that experience for you having that level of visibility now of not just startups like you, you know, had been experiencing, but now after, especially, you know, like hitting it on the software side, but more on being able to see what a really good company has to be able to reach the finish line. Yeah. So related Q is kind of like lightning in a bottle. Um, you know, huge credit to the founders there. So uh, Steve Laughlin and Adam Evans, uh, CEO and CTO, uh, those guys had a vision um, from day one of what could be possible in terms of enterprise software. And it was just, you know, it just hit the market in a way that people were like, yes, yes, that resonates. And, and, to, and to explain to the audience, I mean, it, basically, I won't give the snappy version of the vision, I'll give the, I'll give the raw version internally is that they saw that inside enterprises, there's all this raw information that is basically kind of like data exhaust off of other systems. And they were initially exploring some of the different ways that they could go about uh, utilizing that. But then they came to one, which is, okay, out of email, there's all this rich information about the relationships inside of an organization. You know, who's emailing whom? Who's talking to whom? What's the cadence of that conversation? Where do things drop off, et cetera? And eventually uh, figured out that, okay, we could actually map this into a CRM in a way that's pretty potent. And I think the additional insight was seeing, now this is, you know, this was founded in 2012, um, so about a decade ago. Um, and things have changed a little bit, but also seeing the opportunity to provide really best of class design and software uh, inside that enterprise environment. And so what they what they had there was uh, a piece of software where you would sign up with your email address. Um, and it's a CRM, customer relationship management platform. So you, know, you might be in a sales environment or VC environment. You're looking to track kind of leads and, uh, um, and accounts. But it would automatically pull in from your email information about those accounts so you didn't have to fill in the data the drudgery of kind of like uh, you know filling out all these fields and then it would track it over time like what's happening in that you know who's talking to them if you're working on a multi-person sales team or in a large organization you can see who's the closest connection inside this account and what really stuck with me is a couple things one is if you provide a piece of software that makes the user feel like they're running downhill when usually they have to run uphill, it's magic. You know, if you can create that feeling of, you know, this used to be, you know, a pain in my ass. I used to have to do a lot of work to get this in, but man, I'm just moving. It's magic. And then if you marry that with a design and interface that emphasizes that feeling, that makes it feel, you know, approachable, easy to use, that really amplifies that. So there's the product learnings on that side. And then culturally, and I'll let you choose Alejandro where you want to die, but culturally, I think their ability to push that vision into the market and really kind of amplify beyond the team we were, our presence in the market and our and the market's belief that this is the future was really uh, inspiring. Hey guys, so pardon the interruption here. So I got to tell you that you know, for those of you that are either looking to raise money or you're looking to get your company acquired, you don't have to be alone. You know, there's a lot of psychology that needs to be blended with strategy, with methodology, with process. And it's very hard. And already doing your business alone is super, super difficult. So 
I remember, you know, back then when I was an entrepreneur, I kept really experiencing the challenge of either knowing or finding the right type of access to the right type of investors or really understanding what was the right type of guidance, you know, that would carry me through the process, whether it was with seeking money or with going through the acquisition. So that gap that I found being an entrepreneur is ultimately what pushed me later on when I met my co-founder at Pantera, Mike Severson, to really put together an advisory firm where we are guiding entrepreneurs and founding teams through the capital raising efforts, whether you are at a seed stage or at a series A stage, or if you are going through the process of an acquisition and you are in small to mid cap type of um, a cycle. So again, you know, we would help you from guiding you and, and supporting you from A to C all the way to the end as an extension of your team. And there's no reason for you to do this alone. So with that being said, if you would like to find out more, feel free to send me an email at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. And we would love to take a look at helping you out. And obviously, you know, this allowed you to to, to see how a large corporation like Salesforce, because, I mean, you were part of that uh, transition too there with Salesforce. But one thing that is really interesting there is now you're in an amazing organization, really big, as part of the transaction. And, and, and at what point do you realize, I think I'm ready to really go at it and and bring this new baby to life. You know, how, well, how, how did that happen? Well, Alejandro, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to hit on that, but well, let's touch just one second on that Salesforce transition. So Salesforce came in and they had hit RelateIQ a couple of times with a possible acquisition. And one of the lessons I think for the folks who are listening, if you're an entrepreneur, is Steve and Adam, the founders at RelateIQ, given how they had pressed that vision and, and made the future so clear, Salesforce paid a price that was really representative of them buying the future. Um, it was a good acquisition relative to the stage we were in terms of revenue. Um, close to 400 million, correct? That was close to 400, 400 million? dollar acquisition, yeah. And I, I, won't, I won't reveal any of Steve and Adam's secrets on how much revenue we had at that time, but um, you'll have to get them on the podcast. But it was, it was definitely, you know, Mark Benioff and the Salesforce team were buying the future. And... I think that, uh, you know, one of the lessons that I take home there is that, you know, there's an aspect of building a startup, of building an enterprise, of building a company that really is getting out of the market and making it, making sure that people see what the path is you're creating. Because if they believe it, if they feel it, you know, they're going to pay premium on current status because they see that that path is there. They see where you're going. They see that they want to get it before it's too late. Um, so that that was also another thing that I took home. But then, so we, we got purchased by Salesforce, 400 million, uh, and, that, and that was at then stock prices. So that's really um, yielded a uh, kudos to, to Steve and Adam. I was not a co-founder there, so uh, I wish I had co-founder level ownership. Uh, you know, we might be taking this uh, podcast from a different location. Um, but uh, I was there after uh, the acquisition. I was uh, managing our front-end software engineering team. And, you know... After an acquisition like that, there there are a few different paths that you can take. If you're somebody like me who is antsy, you know, you go back to that kind of uh, realization as I was looking down the hallway at the partners at my law firm. Um, Salesforce is a dynamic organization; it's not like a law firm. But uh, you know, I'm I'm now kind of in the belly of the beast. 
is a large organization, um, very successful organization, very ins- inspiring organization. I have a lot of respect for it. But I get antsy. Uh, I just like, you know, it's just, it, it just, it's not my product. It's not my company. Um, you know, I'm not, uh, I'm not a pirate anymore. You know, I'm kind of in the Navy. Uh, and so I started looking around a little bit antsy about, okay, what's next? What's next? But I wasn't seeing it. I just, you know, you don't want to jump too early. Um, you don't want to jump out of that antsiness. You want to, you want to jump to something, not from something. And so, but I was keeping my eyes peeled and, uh, I started having conversations with a lot of my peers, um, folks who had come over from that acquisition who were also feeling a little bit antsy and entrepreneurial. And the one thing that we kept on knocking around is just as participants in this organization, as employees, as managers, as IC engineers, as cross-functional leads, as people are interfacing with Salesforce corporate, seemed like none of us had a schedule that supported what we actually needed to do in the week. You know, I'd hear from my engineers, you know, they'd come to me and say, hey, Matt, um, I have to work at night. I'm not getting what I need done during the day. I was seeing the velocity of our shipping, you know, just felt like kind of like, you know, couldn't quite get there. Um, And, you know, we hire brilliant people. It's one of the true privileges, I think, of uh, the software uh, industry, especially in Silicon Valley, you work with really smart, motivated people. They want to get in, they want to code, they want to deliver, they want to ship. Um, and yet, schedules seem to be getting in the way. And for me, as a manager, I'm interfacing with you know dozens, if not hundreds of different people. My schedule is kind of a nightmare. I don't have time to focus, I don't have time to get ahead. I feel like I'm always rafting. And it, it kind of comes back to Alejandro that uh, Learning from related Q, the magic of taking some of this data exhaust and making it feel like people are running downhill instead of uphill. Because me and a couple of colleagues, um, specifically Gary Lairhoft, who's my co-founder, you know, he was identifying like we have all this information in the calendar about where people need to be, what their uh, schedules look like, uh, where their limitations are, who they're meeting with. You can get the network of the organization. You know, who are they meeting with? How are they meeting? Um, but you can also make it more efficient. And that's when it really started to click with me. Um, I think to get a little philosophical on you, time is you know, existentially our most valuable resource. But even in a corporate environment, it is the most expensive resource because payroll is the biggest expense. You know, good people cost a lot of money. Um, and yet we don't use it very efficiently. And why? Like, that's the question that kept me up at night. Like, why? Why is this really expensive resource that everybody values used so poorly? And I think the answer is because in modern organization, it's become shared. Nobody controls it. I schedule with you. Now we have a joint uh, time together. My whole day is set up from schedule as other people requesting my time. I go in between meetings and I have Slack messages, I have emails, I have docs to respond to. We are constantly asking each other of time. And yet there's nothing that coordinates or regulates that. It creates a classic econ 101 tragedy of the commons. You have this really valuable resource. There's no regulator. There's no coordinator. So everybody just grabs at it and exhausts it. And that was the moment where on the backdrop of having taken 
this other company using the data exhaust from corporate systems to provide a better experience. And the realization that nobody was solving this at the system level where you actually could coordinate time. That was where it's like, oh man, we got to do this. We got to jump on this. So then you ended up jumping on this. So what happened next? All right. All right. We jumped on it. So uh, <laughs> there are all sorts of different founding stories. Sometimes people come out of this and they have like a fully fledged vision. They're like, I know exactly where we need to go. I just need the resources to do it. Other people jump into it and they're like, I just really want to start a company. And I kind of have an idea, but they end up pivoting a million times. We were the flavor where we had this insight and that insight has remained true. When time is used inefficiently, it's because it's shared. It's because there's no coordinator. Um, we can make it better. And if we can make it better for individuals, we can give organizations huge, huge value, makes them more efficient, makes them faster, makes them more productive. Ultimately, it makes them more competitive on the market. It's hugely valuable. But what we didn't know yet is how to bring it to market, how to productize that, what form it would take. And so while that insight was clear, where the vision of where we might go is clear, the actual how to put, you know, into the market was not. And so the first thing that we did is we quit. Uh, and then we started to test out um, algorithmically, is this even possible? You know, if we get access to calendar information, can we actually improve it algorithmically? Can we look at it, analyze it, and more efficiently schedule? Because uh, to, to nerd out for a second, it, it is a classically NP hard problem. You know, you can't get to a perfect optimization at all. Um, exhaust compute, it, 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 it's, it is, it is, is too tough. And so you got to take different strategies. So we went out and talked to our network uh, and we found some people who were friendly enough to let us connect to their calendar system. Uh, and then we would uh, spend our all day, every day and our nights and our weekends trying to test out different strategies of how we might optimize it. And then we, we knew that people would have to see it. They couldn't just see the numbers. So we built out a little visualizer to show how it could work. Uh, showed it to um, some of those folks, especially leaders. And, um, you know, the moment I knew we had something is when I saw, <laughs> I still remember, uh, we were in Segment's offices and we ran this. We showed them the, the optimization. You could see the events moving. We had, we had kind of like stitched together this little visualizer that kind of looked like a calendar, but it was across, uh, you know, thousands of events. And you could kind of like see them moving in mass and optimizing and that would ratchet up the efficiency that was gained. And you could just see like his eyes widening uh, as he was watching this, the leader at segment. And uh, we're like, you know, if we could build this for you, would you pay for it? And it's, it's like, uh, yes, yes, I would. I'd pay you a lot. Um, and so we then leveraged, we went on and collected a few of those stories along with the visualization. We leveraged that to get a seed round. Um, so we get a little bit of funding. Um, this is all effectively pre-product. I mean, we had... Um, you know, some of the foundational code that's still with us today, but we had not productized it yet. Um, but that was the start. And we raised a seed round from Excel Partners uh, in uh, early 2017. And what was the uh, journey of um, finally, you know, like getting this thing done and most importantly, figuring out how to monetize it? Oof. Okay. So, you know, I envy those, going back a tick, I envy those who have a clear vision how they're going to bring it to market, exactly who they're going to sell to, exactly how they're going to sell, et cetera. Because we spent, we spent a while trying to figure this out. Um, and they, you know, there were moments that were really fun, but collectively there's a lot of darkness there. Because we had that initial iPod moment where we're like, we know, we know we can provide the organization value. We know that we can 
deliver a huge amount of ROI, but nobody's trying to buy this thing. You know, this isn't something that people are going out and searching on Google, you're an engineering leader, how can I optimize calendars? Um, so there's not an existing product category that we can just play in. You know, there's no Gartner uh, quadrant that we can fit into. Um, and, and then additionally, to actually have this thing work, um, you need to get the buy-in of individuals. You know, it, it's you, to maximize the productivity of the organization, the individual's got to be okay with it because it's their schedule. You know, they have to they have to say, okay, this is actually better for me. Um, otherwise, it's very easy for that individual to just reject the thing or say, you know, no way. So we had to experiment a lot, uh, and it was. Um, not easy. I mean, a lot of the times it looked like there's just no way this thing is going to work because you'd go in, our initial attempts were to bring an individual in and give them recommendations. And they were good recommendations about how you might improve your schedule, but they just weren't, you know, they weren't tactical enough. And, you know, we weren't, we weren't providing enough value to that individual to come back. And so I, I remember one winter where I was just like, this is never, this is never going to work. Maybe we should just close the door get back the money and get on with our lives because we just couldn't crack the nugget. But then there was a moment um, right before a board meeting where we flipped in onboarding, in the onboarding of the product. Uh, I won't go into the, the details because it gets a little bit into the particulars of our product, but essentially we flipped a default. Instead of giving the user recommendations and having them opt in, we took a set of recommendations and opted them in and they could opt out. And it, it's so obvious in retrospect, but at the time, you know, look like we're moving meetings and, and this, uh, this opt-in, uh, it was an opt-in to move the meeting automatically. Like the algorithm would take over and move your meeting for you, which we had heard from a lot of people that they were scared of. And rightfully so, you know, you don't want your meeting to move to a bad time. And if we do it at a bad time, you know, we're going to get a terrible reputation and our fires are going to go on Twitter and say bad things. Um, so we were nervous about it, but we flipped the default. And it worked. Uh, it worked. Um, we had massive more adoption in terms of that core feature set. That core feature set was able to drive more value over time. Um, and we're kind of an automation product, uh, product, so we exist in the background. So flipping that default wasn't just about that point in time of getting that value. It allowed for consistent value over you know, the following days, weeks, even months as that user engagement clockwise. And that started this flywheel of people using it, getting value inside the organization and spreading. And it was the, really that flywheel of kind of organic product-led growth that got us to the next stage where we could continue on, we could see the path, we could see the excitement, we could see how this thing could scale. And that scale isn't just important for startup scale. You know, we all want to scale out our startups. We all want to get to massive adoption. But again, going back to the mechanism of the business, it's critical because that's how we provide value. That scale is a prerequisite inside the organization for us delivering value. You know, today we're wall to wall inside of Uber's engineering department, Netflix, Pinterest, Instacart, et cetera. But we need that scale in order to go to that department and say, hey, you know, here's the value. Here's what we're providing for you. So that was a key, key unlock. And it, man, I mean, you know, look, I'm not going to bore your audience with all of it, but you'll find on these journeys and you've talked to some of the best founders in the world, it's these little moments where you, you switch a default or you make a tough decision that feels like it's, you know, a one-way door 
and you find yourself on the other side of it and you're like oh holy shit like that really that was the inflection point that's what made the difference and the only thing that's different about that decision or others is that it worked you make tons of these that don't work you know and you you don't look back on those as being inflection points because they didn't work but you just gotta you stick to your guns you keep experimenting you keep trying you take a few bold calls and eventually you find one that clicks hopefully you find one that clicks and for us um, that allowed us to get to that next stage so as we're talking about uh, getting to different stages, life cycles, you also bring a financing cycle, no? With the right people, with the right, uh, you know, also network to help you to get to that next, uh, to unlock that next stage. So I guess in that note, you were talking about Axel uh, earlier. How much capital have you guys raised to date? Uh, about $76 million. And how has it been also the journey of, of going through all these financing cycles as well? It's interesting. Every round is is different. Um, it's been, you know, I think we've been incredibly fortunate uh, because the quality of investor that we have on our board um, is fantastic. Uh, you know, working with uh, John Lilly, Ajay Agrawal, Lucas Swisher, Steve Laughlin, uh, working with Alaskan or the Slack Fund, we've had some fantastic investors, and I think they've all rallied around the expansiveness and the scope of the vision. You know, if, if you can help solve the issue of uh, productivity inside of organizations and having um, bad fragmented schedules that people aren't happy with, obviously that is a massive, massive opportunity. So um, I feel very fortunate in that regard, but every round is different. You know, sometimes, sometimes you approach a round and it's out of necessity, and sometimes you approach a round and it's out of opportunity. Um, and those are very different postures, and I've been in both of them. Now, obviously, you know, like with investors of this caliber, you know, vision is a big one. So let's say you were to go to sleep tonight, Matt, and you wake up in a world where the vision for clockwise is fully realized. What does that world look like? So we're going to create this world. Um, and it, I don't think it's that far off. Uh, I want to create a world where you, Alejandro, can have the schedule that you want to make you the best version of yourself. And every facet. Um, I mean, eventually, we focus on work today, but I mean, eventually, in work, in personal, and in the combination of those two. If you need to go heads down to deliver a huge project, we're going to enable that for you. If you need to get time uh, to go take your kid to school, we're going to get that for you. And our vision is to give every knowledge worker on the face of the planet a schedule they love. And I really mean love. Something that makes you feel better when you go home at night, something that makes you feel more productive. And through the combinatory effect of that, we're going to make organizations more productive, ship faster, deliver more, drive more revenue. What that looks like on the ground, I think, is every single person has a personalized calendar assistant that helps them navigate their work week and get what they need. Uh, so if it's it's everything from the little simple stuff like, hey, Alejandro, it looks like you missed um, adding a Zoom link to this meeting on Friday. Do you want me to add one for you? All the way to the massively complex, which is, hey, you know, let me know what your goals are for this quarter, and I'll make sure to help you track them and make sure that you have time and you're addressing them. Um, and on a weekly basis, hey, Alejandro, it looks like you don't have enough time this week to go heads down. Would you like me to move some of these meetings around to, to facilitate that for you? And then I can block it off and make sure it happens. Or, you know, hey, this meeting's at 9 p.m., and it actually looks like you're supposed to go to dinner with your wife that, that evening. Uh, let me fix that for you right away. I think that we can enable that world where you don't have to expand mental resources 
um, or time in uh, wrangling or facilitating that schedule. And by giving everybody in an organization uh, that capability, we're able to coordinate amongst people, again, in that shared space as a coordinator, as a facilitator, to make sure that everybody's getting maximally what they need and that the organization is getting the most out of the schedules of their people. My God, that, that, that sounds and looks like a beautiful world to me, Matt. So um, let, me, let me now uh, ask you differently here because we're talking about the future, but I want to talk about the past, but doing so with a lens of reflection. Yeah. Because obviously you've been at it now for, you know, you're way to eight years, you know, with Clockwise, which in dog years, you know, in startup world is absolutely incredible. So, yeah. uh, so let's say I was to put you into a time machine and I bring you back in time to that moment where you are going to be walking away from the you know whole experience that you had with Salesforce and then also with Relate IQ, and let's say you know you had the opportunity of stopping that younger self that was coming out of you know the Salesforce you know umbrella, and that that exact day when that happened and when you gave your notice and let's say you were able to have a sit down, just grab that younger Matt and and sit down younger Matt for a coffee, and you were able to. Give that younger Matt one piece of advice for launching a business. What would that be and why? Do you know what you know now? So the, the piece of advice that I would give myself is your startup is not you. You and your startup are different things and you need to appreciate that. Now, that advice is easy to state. I think it's really hard to internalize. And I don't know even now if I told my younger self that if I would be able to really feel that without having gone through the journey that, I, that I've gone through uh, with the startup. And, and let me unpack that a little bit because I'd have a conversation. Um, I'm incredibly competitive. Like I want to win. I want to win because uh, I want to deliver the vision of the market, but I also want to win just because I like winning. Uh, and so it's really tough for me. And I see this with a lot of founders, a lot of startup leaders, a lot of CEOs to separate out the business from my personal self-worth, from who I am, from who I perceive of myself as. If I'm losing, I feel bad about myself. If I'm losing, I feel like I'm, you know, worthless. Uh, and that, you know, to some degree, that's motivating, but I think it can be really paralyzing because you can get to a point where you're operating out of fear or you're operating out of loss aversion or you're operating out of, uh, you know, emotion. And that is a bad place to be. I think I'm at my best when, yes, I want to win, but I'm taking it with a business mind approach. Like we have resources on our back, we have people, but yeah, we're taking big bets. And you know what? Look, we're going to lose some. That's not the end of the world. We're going to wake up the next morning, we're going to try again. And that's not an evaluation on me. It's not an evaluation on my team necessarily. Sometimes it is, uh, but it's, it's just part of the process. And uh, one of the pieces of advice I was lucky to get from another more seasoned founder at the outset. Um, it's a little bit of a, a little bit of a nerdy characterization, uh, which is true to the individual, but I really like it. He's saying, you know, look, like if you think about this journey as you're on, you're on a boat, you're trying to cross the ocean. If you can control the amplitude of the waves, just think about how much less distance you have to travel. If you're sailing on smooth seas, you know, the nautical miles you're traveling is way, way shorter than if you've got these huge waves that are going up and down on. And that's part of the founder psychology. If you're able to control those waves, you know, where those downs are so low and those highs are so high, 
and you can even kill yourself a little bit. Um, the journey is much better and you're a better operator. And for me personally, going back to the advice, I think it's about separating out that, that aspect of self-worth. You know, that low doesn't have to be that low because it's not about me. It's not about me being, you know, a piece of crap or something. It's about the business isn't doing well right now. What are we going to do to solve it? Wow. I love that. I love that. So, Matt, for the people that would love to reach out and say hi, what is the best way for them to do so? Oh, man. Isn't that the question right now? I mean, what do we do? X, Twitter, threads. Uh, I have resorted to LinkedIn. Uh, you know, I found it, you know, people are a little bit nicer in their professional self are attached to their profile. So, Find me on LinkedIn. You can look me up, Matt Martins, clockwise. You'll find me really easily. Ping me there. Uh, follow me there. Um, I would love to talk. Reach out anytime. Amazing. Well, hey, Matt, thank you so much for being on the Dealmaker Show today. It has been an honor to have you with us. Thank you so much. And thanks for what you do, Alejandro. I love this series. I love people speaking authentically. I think there's so much value when we all talk to each other about the journey. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value, either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.